Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Pastor Scott, and welcome to church at home or wherever you may be. I guess we could say church everywhere today. It's good to uh, be with you this morning. Today is a very special day. It's Mother's Day, and I'd like to begin just by wishing all of our moms a happy Mother's Day. Uh, you guys are like superheroes, especially during this uh, season that we're in right now. Been home with the kids for many weeks, and you can't go to Six Flags or to the mall with them, so you are doing an outstanding job. And we just want you to, to know that we love you and we wish all of our moms uh, a happy Mother's Day. Well, if you have your Bible handy, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 34. We're going to look at one of the most quoted Bible verses by the Bible that there is. In other words, the Bible quotes this verse over and over again throughout, which says that it's very important to be quoted and used so many times. You're going to recognize the verse. You're going to recognize the themes over and over again in Scripture. You know those little name tags that you get when you go places that they stick on you and they go, hello, my name is? Uh, and then, you know, you, you put your name on that. You know, I really, I get the meaning of those, you know, it's so we don't say, hey, you, we, we can actually know people's names. But uh, I really hate those tags for a lot of different reasons. First of all, my handwriting is horrible. And so I scribble and people are squinting, you know, going, your name is what? Because uh, they can't read it. Secondly, they never really stick. Within five minutes, they're starting to curl and then all of a sudden it's gone and you find out it's stuck to the sleeve of your your, your shirt. Um, and it can mess up your clothes. I was recently at a meeting where they actually went ahead and filled the names out for us. And I was so relieved as I stood in line getting ready to go up there. And when I finally got up there, I was looking for my name. I couldn't find it. And, um, and, and someone said, well, here it is. And they gave me my name tag and it said Scott Riverstone. Yeah, that's not my name. What they had done, of course, is look at my email address, Scott at Riverstone, and they thought, oh, that's his name. And so they put Scott Riverstone in. So I, I asked them for another one. They go, we don't have any more. You're tonight, you're Scott Riverstone. So I spent the rest of the night explaining, no, I'm not actually Scott Riverstone. I started just to start saying, yeah, that's my Native American name. It does have a cool ring to it. But uh, nope, it wasn't. But let me just ask a crazy thing here. What if God had a name tag, what would he write on it? Would he say, hello, my name is God? Well, I want you to know that's not what he would write. And you're going to see that uh, as we spend a few moments in scripture together. In Exodus 34, God doesn't give us just his name, but he also gives us a description, a bio of what he is like. A.W. Tozer made a very stunning claim years ago when he wrote, what comes to mind when we think about God, is the most important thing about us. It, you know, it, it is because it shapes how we view our, our life and ourselves and other people, what's right and what's wrong. Our whole mental and emotional framework is built upon that and as well as how we treat other people. As someone has said, we become like what we worship. Tuzzer went on to write that we tend almost by a secret law of the soul, to move toward our mental image of God. In other words, what you think about God will shape your destiny in life. So in Exodus 34, God wants to clarify. He wants to give us a very clear picture of who he is. So he gives us his name and his character. And let's just read together. Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger 
abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. The first thing you notice is that when God's introducing himself here, he repeats his name. Whenever you see anything repeated in scripture, it means it's important. And so he repeats his name. When God first gave this name to Moses, it was on Mount Horeb in Exodus uh, uh, chapter 3. And he didn't just say, hey, my name is God. You see, in in the Hebrew, the word for God is, is translated Elohim. And Elohim in that day was used to describe uh, any invisible but real spiritual being. And in 2000 BC, there were many. Egypt had a whole bunch of gods. Ra was the sun god. They worshiped the Nile. They worshiped frogs. And you can see when the plagues come along that God's actually mocking all of their gods, showing how inferior they are. So the word Elohim is more like a category uh, more than a name of an invisible but real spiritual being. It's a category like like husband or wife. And you most certainly don't introduce your wife by saying, hi, this is the wife, or I hope you don't. No, you use her name. Hi, this is my wife, Millie. So when God sent Moses back to Egypt to liberate the people and to confront Pharaoh, Pharaoh asked a very good question. Who do I tell them sent me? If I just so Elohim, they, they just, which God? So God introduces himself to Moses and he gives Moses a name. My name is Yahweh. Now, most of your Bibles, if you look at them, will simply say my name is the Lord. They'll put L-O-R-D in capital letters. And that's the way that many Bibles let you know that they're translating uh, the Hebrew word uh, Yahweh into Lord. But the word, the name Yahweh means I am who I am. So in the Hebrew, this name Yahweh, it's not fixed to any one time period. You can apply it to the past, the present, the future. Uh, it's God's way of saying I am right now who I am. I will be uh, who I've always been. Uh, I I am who I will be in the future. See, there's there's this unshifting dimension, this stability there. God does not change. He is consistently himself. And he is not restricted by time or space limitations as we are. So that means that if God is compassionate, he's compassionate for all time. And if God is indeed gracious, he is gracious all of the time. If he's slow to anger, he's slow to anger all the time. And and he, he explains in Exodus 33, this is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. In um, the Ten Commandments, when they're given in Exodus chapter 20, the very first commandment of the Big Ten is God says, we're to have no other, what does it say? No other gods before me. There is one creator God. He is unlike any of the lesser spiritual beings or other gods or even concepts of other gods. As Exodus 15 asks, who among the gods is like you, Lord Yahweh? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? But God doesn't Stop just by giving himself a name and letting him know, letting us know that he is set apart by having a specific name. He goes on to say, this is what I'm like. This is what makes me different. This is how 
I want to relate to you and how you are to relate to me. And, and this is really good as he goes on and he begins to explain this in this chapter. The very first thing God says, this is what I want you to know about me. This is what I want you to know sets me apart from every other God. And it's not at the top of the list by accident. It's there on purpose. God says, I am a compassionate and gracious God. There in Exodus 34, verse 6. The word compassionate, and some of your Bibles are translated merciful, in Hebrew is rehum. And it comes from this root word meaning a mother's womb. The, the idea here is the feeling that a mother has for her newborn infant. God is saying, that is how I feel about you. The same feeling that I gave to a mom, how she's going to feel about that child is how I feel about you. A very, very powerful emotion. There is nothing that a mother wouldn't do for her child. I mean, just think mama bear in cubs for a moment. Later on, when Solomon, who was the wisest man on earth, had two women come before him and they were fighting over a child, both claiming that it was their baby. Uh, he, in his wisdom, paused for a moment and said, okay, here's what we'll do if you both want the child. We'll cut the child in half, and you can both take half. And, of course, he knew what was going to happen. The true mother instantly cried out, no, 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 you take the child. What was that? Reham, compassion, mercy. She was willing to sacrifice for the safety of her child, do anything for the safety of her child. This word is also used for fathers in Psalm 103. It says, as a father has compassion, Reham, on his children, so Yahweh has compassion on those who fear him. So Reham is a feeling word. It's an emotion. God says that he is compassionate, but he also says gracious. And gracious, the Hebrew word, Henam, is an action word. It means to help somebody out in a time of need. It's more than just a feeling. It's the willingness to take action and do something to help. And God says, I am gracious. In Psalm 86, verse 15, it says, You, Lord, Yahweh, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant. So if I were to ask, uh, or, if, or if you were to ask God today, God, how do you feel about me? Is the first thing that comes to your mind that he is compassionate and gracious? Well, it really needs to be. He wants us to know that above everything else, that that is the way he feels about us and the way he wants to be involved in our life. When you get to the Gospels, the language of mercy is used all through the Gospels. It's demonstrated and taught by Jesus over and over again. I mean, just think prodigal son story. Jesus is saying, this is what God is like. God is like a compassionate father. Next, God says, I am slow to anger. Now, slow to anger is the opposite of being quick-tempered. God is not quick-tempered. He's not easy to set off. He's not got an itchy trigger finger, just loaded for bear. You know, like I've been saving up, I'm ready to explode, boom. No, not at all. And the Hebrew word for this, this is pretty funny. It's, it's the Hebrew, Hebrew word, erek apayim. And it's a word picture that literally means, get this, long of nostrils. 
No kidding. That's what it says. God has long nostrils. You see, in the ancient Hebrew culture, this was a word picture of a person who had been wronged or they had been offended. They have every reason to be angry, but instead of exploding, they close their mouth. They take a long, 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 deep breath through the nose, and then they let it out through the nose. Maybe they take several. What are they doing? Arik apayim, long of nostrils, slow to anger. Now, the fact is, you can make God mad. He has emotions. But you really have to work at it. It doesn't mean that he doesn't get mad. Obviously, he does at sin, at injustice, at mistreatment of other people of innocence. But in his personal dealings with us, when our hearts turn to him in repentance, he is tempered by compassion, by grace, and being slow to anger and long-suffering with us. And what this means, if, if you grew up in a critical or judgmental environment and you have this subconscious nagging in the back of your head, this sense that God is just waiting for you to screw up again so that he can unload on you, that is not who God is. That's some other voice speaking to you, some other programming from your life. God is slow to anger. We need to allow that to soak into our spirits today. Because some of you, maybe because of upbringing, you, you, you're harsh on yourself and maybe on other people. You need to slow down and receive God's love and his patience for you, his patience with you. And you need to be patient with yourself. You need to be kind to yourself, like you would to a good friend who came to you and, and asked for advice or understanding. God is very patient with you. But at the same time, he wants his love and his patience for us to be an inner moral compass that causes us to be honest about our faults and our sins, to be real in making changes that he desires for us. Next, he, he says that he is abounding in love and faithfulness. Again, two words here. The first word for abounding in love or abounding love is the word hesed. It's very powerful. It's, a, it's almost a panoramic type word. It has no... English equivalent. So our Bibles, they're all over the place trying to translate this or paint the picture of it. Some Bibles will say steadfast love or unfailing love or loving kindness or covenant loyalty. Hebrew scholar Daniel Block said that this is a very powerful term that wraps itself in all of the positive attributes of God. In other words, everything about God goes through the filter of abounding love. All of his love, all of his affection, all of his commitment to us, it overflows. <clears throat> Look what it says, maintaining love to thousands. and some translations, they say a thousand generations. And all of his love, it flows and it doesn't end. But he also says that he is faithful in his commitment to us, which means you can count on Yahweh. When life gets hard, he's not going to bail out on you. He's not going to turn away from you. He's not going to quit or cut ties or give up on you. God is not like us. He is faithful. The word here is emet. He is faithful. And when you put these two words together of abounding love and faithfulness or steadfast love and faithfulness, it's explosive. It's very, very powerful. God will never abandon us or his commitments to us. This gives us hope 
for everyday living. In Lamentations 3 sums it up. It pulls it all together for us. It says, The steadfast love of the Lord, Yahweh, never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is His faithfulness. The pairing together of love and faithfulness is used over and over and over in the Bible to describe God. In Psalms alone, the word hesed is used 126 times. God is he is loving kindness. He is loving and, and faithful to us. And then this final section of Scripture, he says that he is faithful or he is forgiving, uh, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And then there's a tough section of Scripture right following that about the guilty being punished and the punishment even extending to the children of the guilty. It says, and, and yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generations. Yeah, those are some tough verses, and many times they're misunderstood. So let's kind of deal with those first. God is talking about justice here about sin being judged. But he is also talking about the impact of generational sin or the the, uh, impact that generational sin has upon people. These sinful traits can run in families. There can be a history of destructive things that are passed down from generation to generation, maybe anger or addiction or divorce or abuse or critical attitudes or sarcasm or pride or being judgmental. And it's easy for these things to be passed down. It's not good. And you may even recognize some of those own, those own uh, traits in your own family. God, he wants to end those generational curses. He wants to eradicate them. Therefore, they have to be called out. They have to be acknowledged and they have to be punished. In Moses' day, when a person sinned, they would go to the tabernacle or later on to the temple, and a sacrifice would be made, and the sacrifice would acknowledge and atone for their sin. So, let's say you lived back in that day. You would come to the temple or the tabernacle. You would bring your sacrifice, many times a a, a lamb, a pure, spotless little lamb, and you would lay that lamb before the priest. You would put your hand upon the animal's head, which was a symbol of your sin, your faults being transferred to that, that sacrifice, being laid upon that sacrifice. And then the priest would sacrifice the animal right there in front of you. You would see that lamb suffer, and you would see that lamb die in your place, atoning for your sin. You sin, the lamb dies. And this went on for generation after generation after generation until Jesus, the lamb of God, comes. Paul writes that Jesus became the sacrifice for us through the shedding of his own blood in our place. He took our sin upon himself. It's laid upon him so that sin would be judged and we are forgiven. He took our sin. We go free. We sinned. He dies. We go free. He dies in our place. So God tells Moses, 2,000 years before Jesus, this is what I am like. 
I forgive wickedness. I forgive rebellion. And I forgive sin. Three words are used there. The the Hebrew word for forgive, first of all, uh, is nasa. Yeah, N-A-S-A, just like it sounds. And, And it literally means to lift up, to carry or to take away. What a perfect description of what Jesus does with our sin. But notice then he talks about him forgiving three specific things and three words are used. And this is to let us know that God is forgiving of all that pollutes our soul, everything. Nothing is excluded from this. The first word, wickedness or Avon, is kind of like a junk drawer. It just collects a whole bunch of things within it. Any kind of bad behavior, everything from cutting somebody off on the road to genocide is the whole thing of wickedness. Rebellion or pesa is the Hebrew word, means to break the law. It's the willful decision to do what you want to do, to do your own thing and to justify yourself, even knowing the speed limit's 45, I want to go 55. That is rebellion. That is pesa. And then sin means to miss the mark, to not get it right, to mess up. You may have tried, but you messed up. It's it's a picture of the bow and arrow. You pull the, the, the bow back, you release the arrow, but it misses the target. You tried, but you just couldn't do it. You couldn't measure up. You failed. You fall short. You miss the mark. And he uses three, these three words to let us know that Yahweh forgives sins of all shapes and all sizes. But notice this. It doesn't just say that he forgives. It says he is forgiving. It is his nature to forgive. It is who he is. It is what his heart is all about. His desire for us is not to punish, but it's to forgive, to restore. I love the way that the prophet Micah wraps this up in Micah 7, 18 through 20. It says, who is a God like you? who pardons sin and forgives the transgressions of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot, and you will hurl all of our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You see what he he says? He is eager to do it. He delights. What makes God happy? He delights in showing mercy. Why? Because the Lord Yahweh, the Lord Yahweh is compassionate and gracious with you. He is slow to anger with you. He is abounding in love and faithfulness with you. He maintains love at his own going, and he is forgiving of wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Great is the Lord, Yahweh, our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this beautiful, powerful introduction of yourself that you give to us. That you extend your heart to us and invite us in to know your character and what it is that delights you and motivates you and moves you and how you desire to relate to us and have us relate to you. So we pray today, Lord, for the renewal of our mind, for the healing of ways that our mind may have been misprogrammed through hurts and through abuse or through difficult situations in life or just not understanding, Lord, who you are. Help us to know you. 
not just about you in theory, but to know you in our heart, to relate to you in these ways, to receive your love and to respond back to you with gratitude in these ways. And Lord, help us to be like you, to let your character be shaped in us so that we reflect your glory and we look like your children. We love you today. We thank you so much for your love for us. We thank you for one another. Lord, in our church fellowship, we pray your blessings upon every individual and every family. And we long for the day we'll be able to worship together in the near future in person. And we pray for your healing upon individuals, upon uh, this nation, and upon the world, Lord. We need you, and we love you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.